Fasten your seatbelt. I am taking you for the ride of your life. I'm going to show you what this car can really do. Are you ready? I am ready. Hang on. Okay. Here we go. Hold on to your butts. Forget him, kid. To infinity and beyond! It might be a tumor. It's not a tumor. It's not a tumor at all. So you can go ahead and ask me what you're going to ask me, and my natural response could be to get offended. Well, fine, let's talk about it. Any thoughts of, of your own on this matter? But you, is that your thing? You come into a bar, you read some obscure passage, and then pretend you, you pawn it off as your own idea just to impress some girls? Just another American who saw too many movies as a child. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. All right, all right, all right. You're listening to the 30-something movie podcast. One movie each week, 30 years in the making. It's 1993, gentlemen. It's our first movie of the year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And as we try to each and every year, we're we're starting this one off with a bang. We're starting with Jurassic Park. This is a dino-sized episode for 450. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the gang's all here, too. It's been a little while since we've had everybody here. Excited to see everybody. Since the end of 2022. Well, that's true. I mean, we were kind of hopping in and out a little bit. Bo had, Bo had, work was on fire, so he was in and out a little bit from, from our last episode, but we're glad to have you back here. I'm happy to be back. Dennis took a mystery trip during our last episode, too. I think, well, that's all due to the cherry juice, as I understand it. It's Dennis's magical mystery tour. Yes. Which when he finally retires and just like lives as a hermit in what what national park are you gonna go live in? I'm gonna I'm gonna migrate to a bunch of I'm gonna move I'm gonna keep, keep oh, okay moving. okay Yellowstone right. Yosemite yeah maybe Florida then back out to California yeah we'll see yeah that uh, I'll be a nomad yeah that Dennis's uh, Dennis's little Ziploc baggie of cherry juice will take him on his magical mystery tour once he finally retires in like two weeks. And the whole time he'll just be sitting in his recliner. He doesn't even know it. Pretty much. Sounds like a good trip to me. <laughs> right, yeah. That's, I mean, heck, yeah. That works for me. I'm fine with that. All right, it is time to hop in the DeLorean, set the time circuits, and head back to January of 93. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some serious... January 1st of 93, Czechoslovakia separates into the Czech Republic and Slovakia. January 8th, NBC offers The Tonight Show to David Letterman. One week later, Letterman will actually announce the show will be moving to CBS. January 20th, Bill Clinton is inaugurated as the 42nd U.S. president. January 25th, Sears announces it is closing its catalog sales department after 97 years. A lot of famous deaths in the month of January 93. Dizzy Gillespie, blues trumpeter, dies of cancer at age 75. January 20th, Audrey Hepburn, the British actress, dies of colon cancer at 63. Thurgood Marshall died on January 24th, the first African-American Supreme Court justice. Andre the Giant died on January 27th, the French pro wrestler. 
He died at age 49. Top sports, January 5th, Reggie Jackson was elected to the Hall of Fame. January 31st, near and dear to my heart, Super Bowl 27. In the Rose Bowl, Pasadena, California, Dallas Cowboys beat the Buffalo Bills 52-17. to Top books, Dolores Claiborne by Stephen King, Dragon Tears by Dean Kuntz, and The Bridges of Madison County by Robert James Waller. Top movies were Aladdin and A Few Good Men. And we'll just hold on to this one for a while because it's going to be the next couple of months. The top song was I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston. All right. Well, we are here for Jurassic Park. Very, very excited to be here for this one. This is one of those movies that when when I knew it was coming up, I'm like, oh, okay. I'm going to need to take a little bit of a breath before we do this one because there are just so many things. Music. The making of the movie itself, some of the behind-the-scenes stuff that happened. It's a Spielberg, so obviously there's there's some weightiness that comes with that, too. But I'm excited to talk about Jurassic Park, so we're going to go ahead and just jump right on in here. Very quickly, everybody, if you haven't been here before, we spoil the movies we talk about. This is your only warning. Visit our website if you want to get more stuff, 30podcast.com. There is a spot there where you can jump in and become a co-executive producer with us via Patreon. Bonus episodes there, all kinds of other really good stuff there, so go check that out. You can also leave us a voicemail. If you are listening to us, you ever listen to your podcasts, and you're like, wow, I'd really like to talk back to these people and have them respond. Typically, that doesn't happen with podcasts, but if you want to leave us a voicemail, we absolutely will listen to your voicemail on the show and respond. So, Maybe a little bit, a little bit of a delayed two-way communication, but uh, but it's there. So, and the people go on our website and find one of those awesome shirts you're wearing. Yes, they can. Yes, and by the time this episode comes out, I, I have the Thirty Podcast shirt on, so that will be on our merch store. There will be a link to that on our website. So yes, they can go. They can go clothe themselves in us. That came out weird. I. Mm. Just a little. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's not like they're going to be wearing our skin or anything. That got weirder. You just keep going, don't you? It puts the lotion on. No. Okay. Never mind. It's, no. I'm just, no. I'm just going to start. Pat, take over the podcast. I, boy, I, um, I'm putting you in charge. I'm okay. No, you'll okay. fall asleep. Can, Jeff, take over the podcast. <laughs> Hold on to your butts. Hold Jeff's taking over. Because <laughs> Pat will be asleep in like 10 minutes. So Jeff might need to yeah, take Yeah, I've got, I've got a half-life type yeah, thing happening. That's, that's true. That's true. Jeff might be asleep in 10 minutes as well. well that's, that's also true. All right. Let's just jump right into this one. Jurassic Park came out on the 11th of June, 1993, rated PG-13, two hours and seven minutes, directed by Stefan Spielbergo. He also did E.T., Animaniacs. <laughs> T, by the way, there is a, at the time of recording, we have a winter storm that's coming our way. I have been told it is being called Winter Storm Elliot. Oh, Elliot. I'm a little excited by that. When it finally hits, we just all have to say, ouch. When is, when is the storm supposed to hit? Night, I believe. Thursday morning. Oh, is it morning now? Early afternoon, last oh. I checked. Oh, happy fun time. Okay. So anyway, Steven Spielberg did E.T., Animaniacs, and Saving Private Ryan. Writers for this one were Michael Crichton, who died in 2008, and David Kep. Crichton did Twister, Westworld, Kep did Stir of Echoes, and the 2005 War of the Worlds, which Dennis knows is one of my favorite movies of all time that I like to subject other people to. Writers for this one were Kathleen Kennedy and Gerald R. Mullen. Kennedy did the Back to the Future movies and the Goonies and pretty much most of our childhoods, except for Dennis. Molin did Rain Man and Schindler's List. 
Music's done by John Williams, who also pretty much scored our entire childhoods and lives. Cinematography was done by Dean Cundy, who did Apollo 13 and who framed Roger Rabbit. Editor was Michael Kahn, who did Raiders of the Lost Ark and Minority Report. Budget for this one was $63 million. Hold on. Hold on. You, you forgot someone. Who did I forget? There was one man that had the most important job in this movie, and he failed miserably. Tell me. That would be Mr. Phil Tippett. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, as the credits roll, you will see he's labeled as the dinosaur supervisor. Yes. One job, Phil Tippett. Oh. One job. Well, they're just, they're, they're too clever. They're too clever for Phil. Apparently. I would love to have a credit dinosaur supervisor on a movie. That'd be kind of awesome. That would be kind of awesome. Budget for this one was $63 million. Box office. Hold on to your butts here. This might be one of the first times here on the podcast where we can say that the box office grand total here is a $1.046 billion. All said and done. <laughs> yeah. Is that yeah. a lot? It's, it's, a, it's a bit. It's a bit. Flickmetrics gives this a 79%. Cinema score gives it an A. Starring Sam Neill as Grant. He was on Event Horizon and Hunt for the Wilder People. Laura Dern played Ellie. She was in Blue Velvet and Wild at Heart. Jeff Goldblum was Ian Malcolm. He was in The Fly and Thor Ragnarok. Richard Attenborough, who died in 2014, was Hammond. He was in The Great Escape and Gandhi. Bob Peck, who died in 1999, played Muldoon. He was in Lord of the Flies and Smilla's Sense of Snow. It's a shame he's not alive anymore. He could have been in the Muppet version of Lord of the Flies. Uh, Martin Ferrero played Gennaro. He was in Heat and Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. B.D. Wong played Wu. He was in Mr. Robot and The Flash. Joseph Mazzello played Tim. He was in The Social Network and Bohemian Rhapsody. Ariana Richards played Lex. She was in Tremors and Angus. Samuel Jackson played Arnold. He was in Pulp Fiction and Revenge of the Sith. And Wayne Knight played Nedry. He was in Seinfeld and Dirty Dancing. All right. Some, we'll give you some quick trivia. We will give you a quick synopsis of the movie. We'll play the trailer for you, and then we'll get into some of the major moments here. So a couple funny things on the making of this. The T-Rex would occasionally malfunction because of the rain and uh, getting wet. And there are a couple times I know that they talked about how the the T-Rex, the physical T-Rex model, was made of foam. And obviously when foam gets wet, it becomes much, much heavier. And the T-Rex, I guess, would also sometimes get a little fatter physically because of the conditions and whatnot. So the computer guys were constantly having to change their computer model to match up with the physical model of the T-Rex. But other times, apparently, the T-Rex would start to malfunction a bit electronically, and people, I guess, would just be, like, sitting around, and all of a sudden the T-Rex robot would, like, lurch to life for a few seconds and start moving around and totally freaked people out. I would love to have been there to see that. It also would shudder quite a bit under the weight of the yeah. water and the foam rubber having it absorb the water. It would look, yeah. so it looked like the T-Rex was just like shivering in the cold Yeah, while it was just sitting there. Would love to have seen And if Phil Tippett would have supervised these I dinosaurs, know. perhaps they would have been more comfortable and not tried to eat people. One job, one job, that's it. One job. The story that I do love, which does involve Phil Tippett, and being somewhat re removed he from hates that joke, by the, by the way, he hates the fact that people keep telling him <laughs> that he had one job to do and he failed. Does he? Oh, I'm sorry, Phil. Yeah. Phil, I, I apologize on behalf of the 30 something movie podcast, but it, it's just too good to not mention I, because it's hilarious. 
I know, I know. So another job that Phil Tippett was removed from was the uh, stop motion animation that they started with in this movie. Did you guys ever see the episode of the movies that made us on the Jurassic Park? Yes. Yeah, so I, I love this story. I, th- awesome. I think this story is hilarious. Is when they talk about starting with stop motion animation and the computer guys were basically col- told, nope. All we need you guys to do is help introduce some motion blur so it looks like more natural movement. Do not mess with trying to build a model of the T-Rex in your computer. It's a waste of time. We've got Phil Tippett working on it. He is the best. Leave it alone. And the the two guys that were working on it were ILM visual effects artists Steve Spaz Williams and Mark DePay. And they basically were saying, hey, we, we think we could actually fully animate these in the computer and the movement would look, look more natural. And so I think we should do it. They're told, nope, absolutely not. So they then proceed to secretly go ahead and do this where they have an opportunity to. And there's a point at which Kathleen Kennedy, the producer, is going to be visiting ILM to look at some of the pre-visualizations of the stop motion stuff. And they decide, oh, you know what? Hey, we know she's going to be walking through this one area. Let's put our little animation up on a loop. And when she walks by, she's going to have to see this. Like, she'll walk by. There's no way she's not going to see this. And we'll just leave it playing there. And then she'll walk by. She'll see it. And then maybe that's how we get our foot in the door. And and we're able to do more of this in the computer. And uh, it's exactly happened exactly that way. She's walking by. She kind of sees it. She's like, wait, what is that? And, um... I think it was, was it Dennis, Dennis Murin was their supervisor and basically he kind of had to roll with it. And he's like, oh yeah, that's just something the guys have been working on to, to look at if we could do it in the computer as opposed, as opposed to stop motion. And apparently at that point, she and, and the others were like, yep, that's it. That's what we're doing. We're doing it in the computer. And apparently Steve Williams, did he say in that he'd been fired from ILM or he'd been suspended from ILM several times? Something like that. He had gotten in trouble multiple times kind of for his his behavior and his attitude, I believe, is one of the ways it was put. But did not make a whole lot of friends there. But I think that was probably the turning point of this whole movie because I think it would be a very different movie if, if we got stop-motion dinosaurs. Not that I don't mind stop-motion animation, but I think that it's a very different movie and it has a very different impact on film and on the culture if... They were stop-motion dinosaurs. John Williams scored the movie. So I want to talk a little bit about the music a little bit later, but I do want to point out that he scored the movie at the end of February 93, recorded it about a month later, and I think this quote is important to some pieces we're going to talk about later. He said he felt the need to write pieces that would convey a sense of awe and fascination, given it dealt with the overwhelming happiness and excitement that would emerge from seeing live dinosaurs. Now, something that if anybody listens to the soundtrack show, which I think almost everybody on here, we've listened to episodes of the soundtrack show and love the soundtrack show. One of the things in his episodes when he was talking about the music of Jurassic Park that was maybe kind of surprising is you expect this to be almost like a monster movie. Like dinosaur movies in the past, the dinosaurs were always monsters. You would expect maybe, and I think he he mentions it, David W. Collins mentions that you might expect more of a score like a Jaws where there's suspense and there's terror. And yet this score is, for the most part, more majestic and hopeful. And it's just has a very different feel to it. So I definitely want to come back when we're talking about the music, come back and talk about that a little bit more. 
This one I thought was kind of interesting. Despite being called Jurassic Park, the dinosaurs only have around 15 minutes of screen time. Nine minutes are Stan Winston's animatronics. Six minutes are ILM's CGI dinosaurs. So this means only about 11% of the movie is dedicated to dinosaur scenes. I would have thought it would be a whole lot more than that, but I, I, you would assume that there will be dinosaurs in this dinosaur movie, right? Hello? Hello? I truly hate that man. <laughs> and then yeah, the last one. I, oh, yeah, go ahead. But I, I think that says a lot about the acting of the cast. Uh-huh. And the story. The, the, yeah, the, the story is so great. The cast is so compelling in their telling of the story that you don't even realize that there's hardly any dinosaurs in this movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's, it's a little bit of Jaws, too. Like, yeah, you, you I was going to say, it's like similar to Jaws. Yeah. You don't see the creature until you really need to see the creature. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I'm curious, like, what the minute count is in future as they've gone. Like, we've just briefly talked in another time. We talked about the recent, most recent Jurassic Park. And I'm yeah. like, have they gone where they, yeah, that may be an indicator of loss of story, more dinosaur. Yeah. More story, less dinosaur needed. Yeah. You know, I'm curious what the, the minute count would be of how much dinosaur time is there from the last couple, you know? Is it a heavily dinosaur? I would I would guess, based on my recollection of it, yes, definitely. Like, just even the last one I saw. I didn't see the last one that just came out, but the one before that, I'm like, yeah, there's a lot more dinosaur in there. Dennis, I don't think I can adequately answer that question for you because... It was my understanding that there would be no math. <laughs> so. And then the last little trivia piece that I've got here that I always thought was kind of fun is one of the most difficult effects to pull off was actually the vibrating rings of water uh, that Spielberg wanted the T-Rex to kind of announce its presence before the audience saw it. So he got the idea. He had, I guess he was listening to Earth, Wind, and Fire in his car kind of loud and noticed the vibrations on the mirror in his car and the way that looked. And he kind of thought, well, that's kind of cool. Let's, uh, let's do something like that. And they tried to replicate it with water to try to get that ripple effect and they couldn't quite figure out how to do it they kept telling steven spielberg oh yeah we got this we can totally do this and then they kept trying and they're like i don't really know how to do this until finally one of the guys michael lantieri put a glass of water on a guitar and when he plucked the strings it made that vibrating visual that you see in the movie so basically what they did was they put guitar strings under the dashboard to get that effect when you see the water in the cup do its ripple effect when the T-Rex is, mm. when, it, when its steps are getting closer. So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. I would have thought that would have been easier, but interesting. That, that's a typical, yeah. Yeah. All right. This movie, the synopsis, in a world where scientists do what they can without questioning whether they should, John Hammond has resurrected dinosaurs from long-dormant DNA samples and created the world's first prehistoric zoo. He mistakenly believes he's in control. There it is. Welcome to Jurassic Park. We've made living biological attractions so astounding that they'll capture the imagination of the entire planet. The most phenomenal discovery of our time. How'd you do this? Becomes the greatest adventure of all time. Can I touch it? Sure. Universal Pictures presents. You feel that? Hold on to your butts. 
A Steven Spielberg film. This is a feeling all over the park. Yeah, that's nice. Gotta go. An adventure. Look out! Go! I can't get Jurassic Park back online. 65 million years in the making. Jurassic Park. All right, major moments for this one. Run through these pretty quickly. We start the movie off, calling this one Clever Girl, because we start the movie off with the delivery of the Velociraptor, and we can tell pretty quickly that one of the themes of this movie is going to be that people think they have control. You don't have control. There's already a... That little sign that they have that's like number of days since last accident, they have to reset it after this particular one because dude gets eaten, and I don't know how that... I don't know how that, do you fill out forms? Are there OSHA forms that you fill out if you're eating? I know you, like if you fall off a ladder, there's workman comp stuff and there's forms you got to fill out, but what happens when you get eaten by a velociraptor? Yeah, that I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if they have that, that procedure quite worked out yet. And the next scene, everybody's digging. We're either digging in the mines in South America trying to look for amber or we're digging up a, a velociraptor using computer technology, which we look at it now, and obviously it seems very dated, but it's kind of the the juxtaposition of the old-school digging style that Alan Grant is used to with the new computers that are going to revolutionize everything, but he's still not quite so sure. We also get a quick idea of just how much he does not enjoy children when he kind of graphically talks about what a velociraptor would do to the child if it found them and uh, basically traumatized them. We get John Hammond showing up to their dig site, inviting them to his park, because apparently the lawyers need some experts to sign off on this after this accident has happened, because now there's a lot of concern related to the park. So he shows up, he offers to pay for their research and their work, if they will just come to the park. He doesn't really tell them what's going to be happening there, he just needs them to come take a look over the weekend and, and kind of sign off on it. They get there, they get introduced to the park. We'll, we'll talk more about this as we get into our other thoughts, but very quickly we get into the park, they go on their tour. Dennis Nedry sabotages the whole thing because he's trying to sneak out some samples of dino DNA to an opposing company who wants to use those for their own benefit. Systems start to go down, the fences fail, and pretty much everything breaks loose. And uh, we have the scene with the T-Rex uh, attacking the cars, eating the lawyer on the toilet, all this good stuff. We, we have that whole scene, which is probably one of the more tense scenes other than maybe jumping forward to the, the raptors in the kitchen scene. That whole scene of finding out, uh, that was the first time I as a kid found out that the, the T-Rex, their visual acuity is based on movement. So, I mean, you learn something every day. This is where I need the more you know sound drop here. But there, yeah, so we get that. And basically for the middle part of the movie, we've got everybody kind of split up into different groups. And Grant and the kids are just trying to survive for a little stretch. We've got Ellie, we've got Muldoon, we've got Ian Malcolm that are trying to get back to headquarters. They finally get back. They're working with John Hammond. They're working with Arnold, Sam Jackson, the computer guy, to get everything all set up again. Ultimately, through a series of events, they start to get everything powered back up, and everybody is reunited back at headquarters. The kitchen scene, I'm calling this one Iron Chef Pangea, is where the raptors get into the kitchen, which would be a great show. I'd watch it. I'd watch that, too. Chef Gordon Ramsay's Jurassic Kitchen. A lot of yelling and a lot of devouring 
too. So we have that really tense scene in the kitchen with the kids and the velociraptors, ultimately kind of culminating in they escape, they get into that main room with the giant T-Rex skeleton that's out there, and then we the, the raptors are closing in, our heroes of the movie are about to get killed, and T-Rex swoops in at the end, saves everybody, has his massive T-Rex howl there at the end of the movie with the banner coming down, and everybody is able to escape from the island, and they all live happily ever after, at least until the next movie. Those are the major moments of this movie. Does anybody have any other... We're going to talk more about them kind of as we go along, but are there any other major, major moments that I skipped over? I don't think so. I think you've got the the right beats to go through the story, and then, like you said, we can talk further through them as we get going. Yeah. All right. Let's go deep into the jungles of... They, they, what do they keep calling it? Is Isla? Do they call it Isla Nublar? They Isla. do. Isla. Is it supposed to be like Isla? If you were really in speaking Spanish? I don't know. I took French. I don't, so. I don't think so. Oh, I okay. think Isla is Isla's correct. I think. Okay. All right. All right. Deep thoughts. And now, deep thoughts. I have an opinion on this matter. Don't mince words, Bones. What do you really think? I like it a lot. Wow. It's, it's very deep. Thank you. So let's let's start off with this. The first time you saw this movie, what was your reaction to it? Like, were you terrified? Were you excited? Were you, and, and how old were you? Dennis, did this bring back memories of when you used to carry a club around with you and and, well, it was uh, back on the wagon as we were traversing across the country. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. You and the Ingalls family? Yeah. Oddly enough, I, did I, would, where did you guys see this? Did everybody see this in the theater first? Or oh, yeah. Did you see it? Yeah. This is Definitely. I, I did not see this in the theater first. It's one of the big blockbuster movies for some reason that I did not see in the theater. Wow. As far that's, as I can recall. That's, that's a sad story, Dennis. The subsequent ones, and I did see this when it was re-released there, but originally when it first was released, okay. for whatever reason, I'm trying to think what was, yeah, what was going on back then. Yeah. <laughs> I've, sh- I've shared the story before, I think, that right before this movie came out, the that end of school year the last couple months there was a joint unit between science and language arts and the and so in my language arts class we were reading the novel and in science class we were learning about biology and dna <clears throat> so that that school year ended in june and then a couple of weeks later the movie opened so i went and saw it right away when it opened i think my mom and i went and then within a day or two, I went back and watched it with my dad. I just, I loved, I couldn't get enough of it. Yeah, I'm looking, base, this is baseball, college baseball, so that's why. So college baseball years, I pretty much was probably busy, just didn't go to the theater as much probably during that time period. College, God, you're old. I was just a <laughs> freshman in high school. Yeah, wow, yes, such a big age difference. When, when this came out? <laughs> I just finished my freshman yeah. year in high school when this came out. And I was in, probably, I worked for a year or two, 19, 20, 20 months. So I was like sophomore in college. All right. Pat might be sleeping, but he had just finished his freshman year in high school as well. I was in. Pat is not asleep, but Pat agrees with Jeff. <laughs> Pat is in the bathroom right now. 
I think John had just finished sixth grade when this came out. Yeah, that that feels right. Yeah, six or seven. What was the release month of this too? By the way, it was in June. June. Yeah, summer. So yeah, we're we're talking heart of baseball right there. So we're playing yeah. baseball. Yeah, nothing else exists. Yeah, that's completely. I think they said June eleventh. So that's like school just got out, and yeah. all the buzz was, "Are you going to go see this movie?" And then how many times are you going to? Because this was like right when, you know you know, obviously after the 1980s, but still like the remnants of it, like you could get on your bicycle and just go everywhere with like friends and all that kind of stuff. You know, it was pre-driver's licenses and all that. And like the theater was within range and it was just like, man, when that thing came out, it was like, saw it with friends, then went and saw it with the family. And then the very next day went back and saw it with friends because it was just like, holy buckets, this is... Yeah, I'm trying to remember if I saw this, well, because we would have been living in England. I just don't remember if that summer did we come back to the States to visit for a little bit. So I don't remember if I saw it when it came out in the States or I looked it up. This one came out. There was a, a longer lead time. Like there was when a movie would come out in the U.S., in England back in the 90s, it like it would almost be several months before the movie would come out in the U.K. This one actually came out on July 16th in the U.K., so like that's the oh. that's like one of the shortest wait periods. Otherwise, I would always hear from family or friends like back in the states, "Oh, this movie is so awesome! Like you should see this movie." I'm like, "Well, yeah, it's not coming out here until like September, October." So don't tell me anything about it because it's going to be well till I get to see it. But this one was pretty quick. So either I know I saw it in the theater. I don't remember if it was a theater in the UK or if it was a theater in the states, but I definitely know it was a as soon as it came out. Because I was a dinosaur nut. Like, I don't know about you guys, but my two of my favorite things, especially at that age, were astronomy and dinosaurs. And I vividly recall, I don't remember what it was called, but I vividly recall they used to have the exhibits with the animatronic dinosaurs, like in the late 80s, early 90s, that they would, sometimes they'd come to the shopping malls. But I remember in Dallas, they brought it to, might have been one of the museums or the state fair Uh, state fairgrounds and i vividly remember going to that and thinking this is crazy like these things look real and of course they're moving like chuck e cheese anima auto auto erotica whatever they're called but you know and at that point i was like man this is so lifelike and then what three years later this movie comes out i'm like all right well forget all that stuff because this is pretty cool like I have never seen anything like this before, but yeah, no, I was at, at age 12 when this came out, I, I still would have been a little bit more astronomy, a little bit less dinosaurs, but it's still dinosaurs were always like, I feel like at one point I, I had as many different dinosaur names memorized as I possibly could. I was well, just... growing up. Our movies are like land the time forgot all those things. Like we loved mm-hmm. all that growing up. We had the dinosaur figurines. So I think this movie is like ultimately every kid's, initial dream of like what if the dinosaur what if you could really see them so mm-hmm. that that I, I think every kid is is dr grant yes yeah yeah right just someone that loves and respects these creatures and like it's got to be old. the 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 last piece of that puzzle is just being able to interact with them for real and then that opportunity comes and just when that happens for him you just see him almost just melt and can't even process and i think that is the again he's representing all of us yeah yeah i was just excited to see a movie based on a book that i like i really i really liked reading the novel and i was really excited that like 
this movie is coming out and I just read the book. Oh, this would be great. Not knowing at all what to expect. Because at that point I wasn't all into movies. Like certainly not like I am now. Right. So I wasn't thinking about, Oh, it's a Spielberg movie. Holy crap. Oh, John Williams music. Oh my God. Like none of that would have mattered as much to me then. It was just the fact that I just read the book and now there's going to be this movie and wow, these trailers look really cool. And I remember staying up late to watch talk shows when they would have the cast of the movies out and they'd show a little clip of the movie on the talk show. Like, Oh, I just, I can't get enough. Can't wait to go see it. Can't wait to go see it. And it did not disappoint at all. Jeff, do I understand correctly? You read the book first. Yes. We Follow read it. question. We read it in what school. Drew, you, oh, that, okay. That was gonna be, so you read it as a class. Yeah, it was a it was a a combo unit between the science classes and language arts classes. And for me, at that time, I was like, "What's a novel?" <laughs> at, at that time, there was that? a book. <laughs> well, it's college age. I'm like playing baseball. Everything was live, eat. Well, you wake up, you play baseball. Day. That was it. That was me for three, four years because I was going pro. See how that turned out. But yeah, it was literally like that's that was I was working out. I was playing baseball. I was going to school, working out. Play, that's all I did, like as much as I could. If I any spare time, it was kind of dedicated to that. So yeah, I wasn't I wasn't even aware at the time back then that there was. That's why I think I didn't see it at the theater. I don't know. It's, it's amazing. I'm like looking back on, how would I have not seen that at the theater? But, and at that point too, you're at that age where when you're younger, your parents are taking you to movies too. So my dad was a big movie guy and I'm trying to think if he saw this at the theater, I'm guessing he probably did. So we weren't going as a family anymore because now you're, you're in your, your college age and you're not, you're not always going to everything with your parents anymore. So where I was thankful that I had my dad to be like, Hey, this is a good movie. We're going to see this. We're going to see that. And you would just take you along for you hop in the station wagon. Everybody goes to the theater and it's a great family time. But then once you're that college age, you're kind of on your own, you're doing other things. The world's a bigger place. And really, I think there was a time period where, yeah, I'm looking, there's a gap of movies that I did not see in theaters. And I'm like looking back now and going, how did I not see that in the theater? So do you have a favorite scene in this movie? Like, is there one scene in particular that you're like, yep, the moment I think, if I see that logo, Jurassic Park, if I hear that music, I'm thinking of this one particular scene. I could talk all day and all night about yeah. that movie yeah. and all the next day as well because there's just so much I love about it. So I am going to talk a lot during this podcast Sorry, everybody. Ah, go for it. My favorite scene has to be when Grant and Ellie first see the their first dinosaur. And it, that scene is just perfect. And a lot of that is because of the scope that you get with the camera combined with the music you get from John Williams. And then you get that, just that little bit of dialogue. Dr. Grant, my dear Dr. Sadler, welcome to Jurassic Park. And then it just like, just a wave washes over you as you are taking in, like I said, like Alan Grant is, is all of us. And his reaction is, is everybody watching this movie for the first time. 
going, how in the hell did this happen? How did they do this? And in the movie, it's in the context of how did you bring a dinosaur to life? And in the theater, you're sitting there going, how did they make this look so real? How did they do this? And and it, it holds up. It still looks phenomenal. I mean, right? Or am I wrong? I mean, you guys no, can tell me if I'm wrong. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, not too long ago, I showed this movie to Thomas. And, you know, that scene that I just described when the dinosaur first shows up, he just turned and looked at me. He was sitting in front of me and he just turned and looked at me. His jaw was dropping on the floor and he just, he couldn't believe what he was seeing. And I, it was a right. really cool moment. And it's like, we've seen newer movies with special effects that when you look back on them from 15 or 20 years ago, it's like, okay, I, that looks like early computer animation generated. The movement looks a little weirder. Oh, okay. There's that. Or here's this kind of thing. And this just looks so good. And I, I've said it before. And I hope I just haven't said it all the time because I want what I say to have like an, an impact to it. But it's like, you know, that story about like the guys that were doing the computer animation that kind of threw it up on the screen. So when the producer walked by, they just happened to see it. And I mean, they struck the right balance of this is what we can do in this time, in this place to make the movie look great. And they didn't overreach, but they didn't like underreach either. They really, and it's, it ends up timeless. Like it really when you look at this movie, the stuff that seems dated and old is not the special effects, right? The stuff that seems dated and old is this technology from 30 years ago, right? Which is what it should be, right? You, like you should watch the movie and be totally sucked in. You shouldn't notice the special effects, right? And this movie just does that so well. Yeah, just watch. I think it's like you said, Jeff. Well, I'm sorry. I think it's exactly like Jeff said. The first time you see all those dinosaurs, you're just hit with the, the scope of the scene. But it's the the way the actors respond, the way the music swells, the way that the lines are delivered, the way that you first see the dinosaur, you see their reaction, or you see their reaction, then you see the dinosaur, then you see more dinosaurs, then welcome to Jurassic Park, and then you see the full scene. Like, it, it's just put together perfectly so... You know what I'm saying? So that the special effects just, I don't want to say they fade into the background, but it's like you're looking at something real. Yeah. I think that first scene is one of my favorites too. I mean, I love the whole scene with the T-Rex. T-Rex was probably one of my favorite dinosaurs growing up, but that whole first scene where they see the dinosaur, just what you're saying when they drive up in that one clearing and he sees the dinosaurs for the first time. And, and it's that whole, you, you don't see it for I don't know, half a minute or so. You just see him, they pull up in the Jeep. You see him like start to take off his glasses as he's standing up in the Jeep. You can kind of see Jeff Goldblum like behind him and like his mouth starts to drop. And then just, I, I love that part where he like grabs Ellie's head and she's like going on and on and just staring at this leaf. And he just like turns her head. She's like, what, what is it? And just, you see their facial expressions, their reactions. And then you know exactly what's going to happen, but then it cuts to you actually see them see the dino dinosaur for the first time. And then that's when the music swells and, and just, I mean, that's 
that I that scene I think I don't know how many times I've seen it, but that scene just hits me every time. It's like that's the it doesn't matter that I'm now much older than I was when this movie came out, mm-hmm. but I still have that same feeling that I think I probably had in the theater of holy crap, there's dinosaurs in this movie, like actual dinosaurs. And mm-hmm. watching it now, exactly what you're saying, Pat, watching it now, like I don't watch that. There's a lot of movies I watch and I go, all right, that's 90s CGI. Like that's, there are even sometimes with uh, like Terminator 2, as much as the T-1000 is awesome, there are some moments where I'm watching Terminator 2 and I'm like, all right, that CGI is a little rough every now and then. I mean, it's awesome. It's mm-hmm. great. And, and it's, it, it, it ages well. But this movie, I don't, other than the old computers that everybody's using in this movie, I don't think there's anything else about this movie that sets it in a particular period of time. Like, if you could take out, if you could somehow, like, take out those old computers and forget those scenes, I don't think I could watch this movie, if I never had seen this movie before, I don't think I'd watch this movie and say, oh, yeah, that's from the 90s. Or that's from the... 20 teens or I don't think I could pick out what what era this movie is from because it's it's just done so well and so seamlessly between the practical effects and the digital effects well that's what I was going to say too and I think it's because they looked a lot of as they were using the CGI for the first time they looked at well what could we have done practically and let's animate what we were going to do practically. They didn't try to over animate things and go way overboard with it. Yeah. So it's, it blends so well with any practical effects that they have and any models of dinosaurs they're using because they had to go, they had to animate at the limitation at the time. And then they can start as they start developing the technology more and just learning and understanding the technology that they created they're able to then start doing more with it in later Jurassic Park movies, just in later movies going forward. Mm-hmm. But the, their own, I guess their own lack of understanding of the technology that they created really served them well in this movie because there's nothing about the technology that you sit there and go, that would have, that, that's clearly computer generated mm-hmm. right you know they, they they gave themselves limits and parameters to work within with the animation i th- i think and it looks good enough that th- thank god steven spielberg has never gone back and said ah, maybe i should give this the george lucas treatment let's let's do a special edition like no please don't <laughs> no no the 3d edition was awesome you know what? I I don't I never saw it in 3D. I actually uh, think it was it was it was amazing in 3D. Listen, it? it was so much fun. I I think the Blu-ray copy that I have might be a 3D Blu-ray. I mean, I don't have a nobody has 3D TVs anymore. But seeing seeing the T-Rex like his head just come out of the screen at you when he yeah. just opens his jaws and and roars. Yeah, I it was just it was like. So inundating. Oh, that's cool. It was a lot of fun seeing it in 3D. And usually anytime that I see it, it's being re-released somewhere. I'll try to just go and check it out again. I just, I, I love this movie so much. And again, it hit me at a point when I was just like, 
I was captivated in the wonder of how did they make this whole thing work? You know, kind of the same thing. Like when I watched Roger Rabbit for the first time, I wanted to be like, wait, 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 no, don't go on. How'd you do that? Yeah. How did, how, how did you animate that? How did you create a 3d animated character that's interacting with humans? Right. Same thing. Then watching Jurassic park. How do, how, how, how did you make this dinosaur on a computer? But yet it looks like it's right there and it's interacting with, with the world around it. And it takes up three dimensional space. That's what got me into this movie so much and, and wanting to learn more about the story behind the development of the movie. So this might've been one of the first movies really that really kicked off my interest in learning more about film and filmmaking. What about anybody else? Anybody else have a, have a favorite scene? Favorite scene for me, Raptors in the Kitchen with, yep, Raptors in the Kitchen. If you say like, you pose it as, if somebody says Jurassic Park, what do you think of for some reason? And I don't know why, but that scene always pops into my mind. When, when they Raptors. give you the close-up of the claw clicking yeah, on the tile yeah. floor. Yeah. Yeah. And how they, they tried to play it like the clicking of the claw was sort of like communication. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. That's good stuff. I think the Raptors are a big, big part of this movie. Mm-hmm. Just from a memory standpoint. The suspense in that scene too is just so, you know, you're thinking they're not going to kill kids, but at the same time you're thinking maybe they'll kill a kid. Yeah, I mean, they're not going to kill kids, but they might kill a kid. Yeah, or if severely injured or something. Like you, you still right. have that because things happen so quick, and some people just got eaten throughout the movie. Right. Like, boom, and you're just thinking it's, maybe again, no off limits. You know, kudos to Joseph Mazzello and Ariana Richards. Oh yeah, yeah. I like being able to pull off that kitchen scene. Yes, with nothing. With with there. with with nothing. Like, how do you get that out of kids? Yeah. Yep. And you'd never once question their performance in that scene. Yeah, it's like, it's almost, I want, it's not, not a horror film, but like when somebody's in danger in a horror film, when you have Michael Myers or somebody like right there and they're right, you know, there's that panic and there's that, that bated breath sort of just moment of just, they pull that off without any, I, I wonder, have you seen the behind the scenes that they filmed that or no? Were the kids just imagining, or did they have somebody maybe physically there to help kind of create the that tension? I want to say I thought they had like animatronics that they could okay. show. So they had saw some they like had, some storyboards and, and some some smaller yeah, scale. Like when they actually well, but I feel like it. but I feel like when they filmed it, there might have been because I feel like there was a scene in one of the behind the scenes deals where there was a guy who was in. He had a raptor suit from like the waist down. And it was like, just kind of, and like he was crouching, the, like yeah. he had he had the raptor legs on, and like he was crouched down, and he was like crawling around, and and I, that might have been how they filmed part of it, because I remember seeing that like there was a performer that had. Uh, I was gonna say there needs to be a performer there in that room, I think, because you have to have that sort of feeling of hide and seek or or avoiding somebody where it's that tension of, of, it. Yeah. and and if no one's there, even though you're trying to imagine in your head, I just think someone's physically there, even though they're going to be replaced by their actual raptor later, there has to be almost like a stand in that's going to help create that sort of, cause it's too, yeah. Like you said, it is a credit to them. It, it like I, you stop and you think, yeah, they're, they're kind of reacting to not nothing there mm-hmm. physically, or at least not what they're seeing in the movie. 
is not there physically, which is terrifying. And, and, but they don't have that luxury. Seeing it like we do. So you stop and you think this is pretty impressive performance and good casting and, and, and pulling it off. But that scene always stuck with me. I just, I love that scene. If I TV boom, I'm stopping and watching that one. I'll tell you, I like the scene this time that stood out was the scene where they're all having dinner after going through the ride and they're, they're discussing like, no, what I was going to say was that the scene where they're all sitting there, they kind of rain on John's parade and um, they're telling him that this, the park's not a good idea. They're having dinner and they're, they have the slides going around the room. You guys remember that scene? Oh yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, it's so great because what, what I really keyed into on, and this time in watching it was just the movie is infinitely quotable, right? From the fun, like, must go faster to I really hate the man and hold on to your butts, all these things. Clever girl. Clever girl. You guys were working so fast to see if you could. You didn't see, stop to think if you should. But, I mean, there, there's, like, that deeper debate going on where – should we really be doing this? Like, was this a good idea? Is this a bad idea? Like there was some deeper things that you could really key in on. And, and I think that's what, and I know we discussed earlier, like the sequels and everything. And I, I don't think you can replicate that. And I think that's where any sequel has a challenge is, is this movie really brought up some deeper, some deeper thoughts, if you will, not only the fun kind of like action quotes and all that, you know, but like these, the deeper life finds a way and, and I, the discussion later where he's talking about the flea market and you realize that this is what this guy, it's not like John Hammond is this incredible scientist or this forward thinker. And, and Ellie Sadler calls him on it. This is still the flea market, right? You've created something false, right? You know, it just, just so much kind of a deeper level there, but I really like that scene because not only did it have like these deeper discussion pieces going back and forth, but it also, the way it was shot, and I mean, it's like, hello, we're talking about Steven Spielberg, who's amazing. The guy's a genius filmmaker. But what I noticed this time is when they were sitting around the room, when John Hammond spoke and he was talking about all the potential, like the, the slideshow light was like over his shoulder, like illuminating him. He was, it was like, it was like looking up at him. Do you know what I'm saying? He was like staring up into the, the better future. But then when Ian Malcolm started talking, the slideshow light was coming like right through his head and the camera had like this down look so that maybe the camera wasn't going down and he was like looking down. So he looked more sinister. He's the voice of this isn't going to work. This is a bad idea. And it, it, and just the way that they shot with the camera angle, the way they shot that with the light from the slideshow and what, what hit me this time. And I mean, maybe I'm just imagining things, but when they go to, when they go to Alan Grant and say, well, Dr. Grant, what do you think about this? Like after everyone's argued, it's okay. He's, he's going to have like the final say. And as he's talking, he holds his hand up and the, the slideshow light shoots through his hand. So it's almost like he's holding on to the light. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it, it, it almost seems to say like, he's got all the answers in his hand where he's like, he just gives that measured approach. Like, boy, I was excited too. But, and just, you have these thoughts, you have these actors delivering their lines and, and inhabiting their characters, but just the way they, they compose the shot and the way that the lights in the room kind of reinforce who those characters are, it, it really was like, wow, that scene is just so well put together. And I'm not doing it justice describing it, describing it, but go back and watch that and just notice how the light illuminates the person speaking. And it really kind of reinforces where their position is in the debate. You know, 
that scene is one that I quote often. The whole, your scientists were so preoccupied if they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. And then mm-hmm. you know, the quote goes on with, you know, they they read up on what people had done prior and they took the next step, but they didn't earn that knowledge for themselves. So they don't take responsibility for it. And I feel like that part of that quote too, just can be applied to so many things. I use that in my DC versus Marvel movie debate. DC read up on what Marvel did to make movies, but they didn't earn that knowledge for themselves and therefore their product is subpar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I, I, that's, that's one of the quotes that I use a lot of times is you were so preoccupied with whether or not you could, you didn't stop to think if you should. Right. Or at least Sadler talking to him and saying, there are plants in this. Patrick, we lost you again. We lost you again. But I think he was probably going to the Sadler quote about there are plants that have no idea what time period they're in. They're, they're poisonous. You picked them because they look good but they are aggressive living things and they will defend themselves. So let's, I I definitely want to talk a little bit about the music in this one because good Mm. Lord, (laughs) it's not so good. (sighs) So when we go through Yellowstone, because you brought up the national parks earlier, anytime we throw drive through, has everybody, anybody been through Yellowstone drove driven through? Mm. No. No. Okay. So when you do, and if you go with family, especially in your kids, it's awesome. When you go through it, there's a request from my kids, and we and I just automatically do it. Even when I'm by myself, I did the last few times when I've gone by myself through there. You got to put the soundtrack on as you enter Yellowstone. The grandeur of the – it is the most – it is – you just – windows down. If you had a moonroof, put that sucker up, sunroof, and you just blast Jurassic Park driving through. It is it's, – it's phenomenal. It's amazing. It's like one of my highlights of all my trips with my kids going through there. It's just like blasting Jurassic Park while you're driving through Yellowstone National Park. It's phenomenal. That's cool. Well, now I want to go do that. Yep. Road trip this summer. <laughs> Maybe. But if you do it, seriously, I'm telling you, like when you, when you remember and you start getting close to Yellowstone and you're approaching all that beautiful scenery out there and you're out in the middle of kind of feeling like nowhere, just throw that sucker on there. It brings back just the feeling of Jurassic Park. It's just it's a, Perfect soundtrack for going through there. There's road trip music to get there, rock music, songs, everything else. You get there when you enter and you first see the beauty of Yellowstone. Just put that on. Yep. Oh. I should pull up some video. I have video of us going through and you know, on the phone, and people are holding out the thing, and you can hear the music in the background playing.
there's a completeness to that piece of music. Mm-hmm. And I, what I mean by that is like, I feel like that piece of music encapsulates everything, all the feelings, all the moods, all the emotions, especially then as it starts to build. Yeah. That piece of music is just a gorgeous piece of orchestration. And not, so, an, not an easy one to play. I played it in high school. Not easy. Uh, but when you really put the time in and you really start listening to the, the layers of it, it is a gorgeous piece of music. Because it's, and I mentioned earlier, like you could, you could have the tendency to make this like a Jaws, especially with Steven Spielberg as your director and have it be a monster movie. But for me as a kid, even going to see this as a 12 year old kid, like I'm going to see this and I know that I'm going to see scenes where dinosaurs are eating people and attacking people because I've watched the trailer. But at the same time, even in the midst of all that happening, even in the midst of the terrible things that are happening to humans, in this movie, I, you can still play that music. And as I go back to being a kid again and I'm like, yeah, but dinosaurs are cool. Like, sure. They're eating people, but they're so cool. And like, I think that piece of music like always brings me back. It makes me feel like I'm a kid again and that I love dinosaurs as a kid. And I, well, I, I, I can, I can forget the parts where they're devouring someone's face because I'm like, well, yeah, dinosaurs, animals, sure, whatever. But but they're so cool. And I think that's what that music helps me go back to is. And it, we, I remember having a conversation about all this music was saying, does it really fit that? Like if you were to play that soundtrack without knowing Jurassic Park, the movie existed, you would have thought people said a sports film, some inspiring sports film where somebody's winning the big, it's like sort of that type of thing or the grandeur of nature Yeah. also did pop in. So I said that. And if you really think about like, it isn't about the story it's not the theme for the story. I feel like it's the theme for the place, for the dream, for the, for the, the, like you said, that little kid who dinosaurs are alive and it's this grand, beautiful land of nature where all these animals that we only dreamt of seeing in person, as scary as they might be, how cool that is. And it's like, it captures that. So it's, it's really a theme for the park itself or the place itself and not the film. Is so what I remember the discussion being about kind of. So it's and interesting I would agree on that because there's yeah it's, there's some dark scary things happening there and that is like a hopeful mm-hmm. inspiring just epic theme. It's interesting that you say that because that that music podcast that we will sometimes listen to the soundtrack show he actually breaks the two themes he he talks about there being two major themes for this one. And that one is theme from Jurassic Park, and he calls that one the theme for the animals. So it's the theme for the actual dinosaurs themselves. I'm going to play, I think I've got the right one, uh, on the soundtrack. It's called Journey to the Island, and he says this is the other theme, and that's the theme for the island and the place itself. Mm-hmm. So let me, let me play this one real fast. Okay.
that's the one that he kind of refers to as that's the theme for the island and that the other one is the theme for the animals. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I see, see that. that. I see that now when you explain it to me that way. But now, like, because of Yellowstone, because of that, to me, it's the place. Yeah. You know, like, it's the land, it's the it's the park, it's the it's the, the setting. Yeah. And But I could definitely, yeah, when, when you think back to where it was, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah that fanfare, though, the, the presentation of the place, and you get the fanfare that mm-hmm. goes with it, and you get those horns blasting out. Yes. Like, yeah, I mean, it's very much a a, a regal yeah heroic champion type moment mm-hmm. patrick take note of that we can use it in our in our class that we're going to teach yes i think that's good have you guys seen jeff i think i showed you this have you seen that where they rescore that scene that you talked about as your favorite scene where they see the dinosaurs for the first time there's some stuff on youtube where they rescore that and they change the music there yeah. <laughs> it really does kind of a mind job on that scene. You know what I'm saying? It's, yeah. it's interesting when they put a different piece of music. Patrick, are you going to bring up the piece of music that you and I once discussed that you really enjoyed? Yes. Do you, do, do you recall <laughs> this conversation? Yeah, of course. Why don't you go ahead and tell the listening audience? <laughs> it's when you get that juxtaposition of the two different types of of thematic feelings. Right. And you have that dun 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 dun. Yes. Dun, yes. Okay. Dun, yeah, yeah. Dun, dun. And then yes. it, you have that that little pad, help me with the words here. The the unresolved moment. Yeah, you got like a dissonant note, an uncomfortable note. Yeah, but then it goes into and, that really beautiful melody as well. Right, right. I, I like that. No, I know exactly what you're saying. But as they're building in the themes, it's funny because this is one of the frequent, when we're in the car, Jurassics, the Jurassics are big in our house. My kids love animals and like, they love these movies. And so whenever we get in the car, what do you guys want to listen to? It's always, we listen to Homeland from Spirit, the animated movie about horses. We listen to Homeland and then we listen to Jurassic Park. Like that is constant play in the car. And so it's like, I've, I've, I've been listening to this music a bunch, but yeah, it just all those opening strains. And it's, it's funny because you guys are talking about the soundtrack show and that's one of the coolest things I think that the host David Collins does is he plays the melody and like just narrates a story while he's playing the melody. And, and, and it's like the way he puts the words in kind of helps where that melody is. And so like you, if, if it's, if I'm remembering this conversation correctly, it's those unresolved notes that make it seem like this is epic. This is big. This is, Hmm, are we doing the right thing? You know, it's almost like musically asking the question, mm-hmm. your scientists were so quick to see if they could, they didn't stop to think if they should, I'm messing up that quote, but you get what I'm saying. And, and, and they write those questioning notes into the music. I'll tell you, I like the, I'll tell you, I like when it builds and builds and builds and then you get like a vocal thing, right? You get like singers come in on, and they all sing and it comes in right as the music is soaring to one of its, one of its highest like cadence points. All of a sudden you get the, the I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to sound ridiculous if I do it, but you get like a whole choir come in and sing a chord along with the, with the orchestra. And it's just, it's just so impactful. It's, it's just great stuff as that opening strain and it just sounds so searching 
it starts in like horns, I think French horns or something, and it builds into that questioning thing. But then, like you said, it kind of transitioned into the flutes and it goes from this searching and questioning melody to something of beauty. And then that's what kind of like leads you into the, leads you into that theme. So yeah, it's just, it, well, it's John Williams. So, well, it's, we're not saying anything astounding here, but yeah, it's just so well put together. The, the piece that we played in high school to like really showcase the diversity of the, of the piece, because at one point it cuts out and the only instrument that's playing is a piano mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. can get the piano plays a couple of, a couple of melodic lines. And then it just rebuilds based on just what you get from a piano and every layer again, is just, it gets more brilliant. I mean, John Williams really outdid himself with this, with this particular soundtrack, I think. Might be my second favorite John Williams piece. Behind E.T. Mm. Okay. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. I should have known that. I should have yeah. known that, Jeff. It's just, it's... I don't know. that conversation. What's that? I said he should have known that from that past conversation. Yeah, remember that we <laughs> talked about it that one time? Yeah, we were listening well, to remember, records. I listened. I remember. I remember you talking about ET a lot. Well, you know. Why don't you just tell me yeah. what you'd like me to reference? No, yeah, no. I mean, if I remember, you Pat, you pointed that part of the music out, and this was like a number of years ago that we were sitting in your office listening to this stuff, and you pointed that one moment out to me, and like that's just stuck with me since that conversation. Yeah. Well, it's how cool is it that you got a piece of music that's in a film? that you can just sit there and just listen to the music. Like Dennis, it's the music's powerful enough that it, it scored your trip out to Yellowstone. Right. I mean, you know, that's pretty cool. You know, like, and I'm not, no, I'm not going to mention specifics because I don't want to be sounding like I'm taking shots at any other movies. There's other movies you can put the music on and it's like, okay, that's a cool theme. Or I remember the scene in the movie or what, but like this, you can just put it on and this, you can pull these parts out to it, out of it. And I just, I'm, that's what I'm a sucker for. That's the kind of soundtracks I personally like. And I get a lot out of, and it's amazing because those are the things that that always sounds timeless to me. Right. I mean, that's whatever the technology is, whether they, there's no such thing as cell phones when this movie came out, whether when computers were in their earlier stages and it was like, well, in a few years, we'll watch this movie and we'll look at that. They're still buying driving gas powered vehicles. Ha ha ha. You know, like, I mean, and all those things, but the music is just so much like the special effects. It's just so good. It just, just great sounds that really bring the whole, bring the whole thing to life. Yeah. Well, I know we, we could go on and talk about this for like the next several hours, but is there anything? (laughs) Okay, let's do it. Is there anything? We'll we'll get into our three questions here in just a minute, but is there anything else we want to bring up? We haven't brought up yet. Uh, Jeff, did you want to talk? Because I know I haven't read the book yet. Did you want to, is there anything you wanted to say about the differences between the book and the movie? Or the only thing I know, having not read it is everything I've heard is that the book is much more brutal in terms of the deaths and things like that than it is in the yes. movie. Yeah. The, the, so the deaths are a bit more severe in the book, of course. And, and John Hammond doesn't live in the book. He doesn't get to ride off into the sunset. He 
pays the price for the what he funded. He doesn't he doesn't get to to fly away from it and leave it all behind. Yeah. And I think I, I think it's a, a pretty faithful adaptation because it still asks the same questions. I mean, of course, the book has more dinosaurs in it. Yeah. But I think because of the technology at the time, they were just sort of limited with what they felt they could do without it falling into the category of being too cheesy looking, too, too computer looking. They, they had some decisions to make in terms of how do we want to present these dinosaurs? Do we want to go through the list of everything in the book and figure it out or not? And just focus on these few that we know we can probably do really well. And there are some other aspects of the book too, that I wish had made it into the movie, particularly one of the ships that leaves the Island as it's pulling away before the power goes out and they can't communicate with the ship is they see that there's Raptors, a couple of the Raptors on that ship. Hmm. And they're so worried that if that ship reaches the mainland, then those raptors are going to get loose in the mainland. So that's part of the urgency of getting the power back on. We need the power back on so we can communicate with that ship and let them know, do not dock. You, we, can't, uh, we can't risk letting that ship dock one in, in a port in the mainland because then all hell for sure is going to break loose. And we lose that aspect of it. Uh, and there's also a, a, a river rafting, a river rafting scene in the book that is is lost in the movie, mm. unfortunately. But again, the, it, there's a lot more tension in the book. And don't worry, the movie brought the tension. There are parts in the movie where, especially the first couple times I saw it, I was just holding my breath and on the edge of my seat and just. The tension is in the movie, but there's there are some more scenes in the book that you know definitely a lot more tense, bringing a bit more fear factor to it, a lot more worry for these characters. I'm trying to think of anything else. The book itself is not written in chapters; it's written in iterations. There's seven iterations, and it's the idea that we what the iteration is the change. I want to say it's like the change in the repeated pattern. And when you start looking at different changes in the repeated pattern, larger pictures start forming. And then you get to the point where you're like, okay, we've got a problem now. So it's be, being able to look at the, the entire scope of the thing. Is it tie? It ties in more of the chaos theory idea. Yeah. Okay. Definitely more chaos. Yeah. But again, I think the movie at the time it came out being kind of limited to what they could do technologically, I think the movie does a fine job because it still asks a lot of the same questions and it gets the conversations going, particularly as, as Pat pointed out, that scene around the table where they're all talking and raining on, on Hammond's parade, talking about, did you even think about the negative impact that this idea could have or were you so eager to make it happen that now we're stuck dealing with the fact that there's going to be negative things because no matter how many plans you put in place, there's the one you didn't think of. And then you get that scene between Hammond and Sadler later in the movie talking about the flea circus. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, and even though he's still talking about, oh, it was a great little thing I did. And she's like, it's still all just an illusion. You're failing to see the bigger picture here. You're failing to see that this is all just a game. It's a gimmick. It's an illusion that you have no real control over. Except this time your fleas eat people. Yes. Yes, it's true. If you if you guys have never read, the, has anyone else read the book? No. You, you, I have. It's, it's great. Yeah. So, Pat, do you think I, I summed up the book well? Yeah, and you know what? I, I, I'm really glad to hear you say that. I read it once, and it was a while ago, so I remember the different characterizations. I remember what you're talking about. It's a little bit more brutal. It's just, it's just different. Like, you know what? I'm not gonna... I'm not going to take 20 minutes to repeat what you said so eloquently, like in one it's, it's exactly as you said, it's just, they, the characters are a little bit different. You know, I think that, you know, more people are getting eaten, more people are getting eaten sooner. I think there was a number of the scenes in the books that they kind of incorporate into later movies in some way, shape or form. But mm-hmm. I mean, all those scenes are kind of more, it's not the message. And I think the message of the book kind of gets, echoed so eloquently in the movie, right? Like, I think it's an excellent adaptation because the book was great, but you can't do that in a movie format so that the way they altered it really, it gelled, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I used to teach the book when I had an eighth grade class. Okay. I okay. Used, we used, this became one of the texts that we would read through. And I mean, and, and again, when, when you present it in the right way, my eighth graders were starting to ask all the same, the same ethical questions, you know, is this, is this an ethical thing to do? Or do you lean on the side of, of Dr. Malcolm, you know, dinosaurs had their chance and and they're gone. There's a reason that they're gone and not here now. Like, is it right to bring back species that have been completely wiped out? In, in in that way. And I, I love the fact that they bring up the difference when Hammond says, if I wanted to make a, an island of condors, you wouldn't be saying this. And, and Dr. Malcolm points out real fast, that's different. We're not talking about a species that was wiped out by man. We're talking about a species that was wiped out long before man was even in the picture and how reckless it is then for mankind to bring the species back. You know, and when you hear eighth grade students having these conversations, talking about the ethics behind this, where does it end? Let's say that it didn't, it didn't go poorly. What's the next thing they want to try to bring back? How long before they start trying to bring back people? You know, and it's a really, really interesting conversation to have with a class full of kids. And that's when you wait a few years and introduce them to Westworld. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I can't wait to get to question number two of our three questions. But you guys, you guys should all read the book for sure. I mean, it's, it's a fun, it's a fun read. It's a good summer read. Yeah, I have a copy of it. I just, I've never, it's sitting in the library. I've never actually sat down and read it. It builds a lot of the mystery too, leading up to stores, right? Like you start hearing about different attacks that take place. And the, the uncertainty 
and the different reports you get from different people from different parts of the of Central America that and South America that are saying, well, we think it's this. Well, we think it's this. Well, we think it's this. And you're like, somebody's covering something up. And then the the book also ends very differently than the movie does. But again, the movie stays true to the story it's telling without deterring or completely destroying the novel. And were there multiple novels before the other movies or no? Or was it based on just one novel? It was just based on on this That's one. That's why. So they could wrap up the ending there where probably Jurassic Park, the movie, they're thinking, how can we, if this works, how can we make more? Mm-hmm. Well, because then Michael Crichton came out with a sequel novel. But after the movie. But I'm not, I'm, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was after the movie. after the movie. Yeah, not just based on the book. Okay. You can find a clip online somewhere, I'm sure, of Spielberg telling the story of when he talked to Michael Crichton about, like, hey, what are you working on? Oh, I have this idea about, you know, scientists bringing back dinosaurs and trying to turn it into a theme park. And Spielberg was like, I would like first go at at the rights when it's time. So, anyway, read the book. Everyone should read the book, read it multiple times. It's, it's a lot of fun to read and reread. So there we go. There we go. All right. Very, very quickly. There was one other little trivia thing that I, I remember hearing just in the last couple of days or so. And I was like, Oh, that is, that's so cool. I never even thought of that. I was going to share that real quick before we get into three questions, a little bit of foreshadowing. We know that life finds a way in this movie. And we, we are suggesting that female dinosaurs will, Breed. When they are in the helicopter, when they're first coming to the island, and uh, Doctor Grant is unable to get his seatbelt buckled, <laughs> do, you, do you notice what he does? Yeah, he takes two female parts of a seatbelt and ties them together. Finds a way. So he takes two females and finds a way. All right. Well, if we have nothing else, let's get into three questions. We can get into three questions. Should we get into three questions? I don't see anything ethically wrong with three questions. All right. Well, wait till I ask the questions. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> before you it's... make a value judgment on the question, you must hear the question. <laughs> which, of the, the questions. <clears throat> which of the human, ha- there has to be a food question. So which of the humans in this movie do you think tastes like chicken? He asks each traveler five questions. Three questions. Three questions. Impossible to answer. Impossible because you don't know the answer. Nobody could answer that question. I want to ask you a bunch of questions. I want to have them answered immediately. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. All right, question number one. Channel your inner 10-year-old here. What is your favorite dinosaur? You know, speaking of, going back, speaking of humans tasting of chicken, we've just been studying westward expansion in class and got to talk about the Donner Party. Donner Party of 50. And the, uh, the looks on the kids' faces when we like started like, so they did this and then they got stuck and then they started going through all their supplies and one thing led to another. And 
that was survive or die. And they turned to cannibalism to continue to survive. And like, as kids were like, they just could not believe what I was telling them. I'm like, this is what happened. Anyway. If, if you need an extension activity later this year, we will be talking about a movie called alive from 1993. That's what I said. I'm like, we just show them alive and let them watch that. Yeah. Yeah. That's fine. That's fine. Anyway. Because when you tell somebody, when you tell somebody bite me, just be very careful who you say that to. Is your name Donner? Yes. Don't ever say that to Richard Donner. No. All right. Uh, Director, cannibal, man of the people. All right. Channel your inner 10 year old. What is your favorite kind of dinosaur? I'm sorry, dinosaur. Dinosaur? Mm-hmm. Mr. DNA. I, I love dinosaurs. It's in my <laughs> blood. <laughs> I always like the Triceratops. I don't know why. Yeah, they agreed. Just, mm-hmm. Fun looking. And in Land Before Time, she's sassy. It's kind of fun. True that. <laughs> True that. It didn't hurt that my sister's name is Sarah, so that was her favorite character from that one. Well, and... Yes. And let's just say her attitude and sassiness, not too different from Sarah. Thank you. I wasn't sure I could get away with that, but you can. Mm -hmm. Oh, I totally can. (laughs) And she doesn't listen to this, so that's fine. (laughs) Did you hear the, was that from a few years ago, Pluto-level controversy about how there is no such thing as a Triceratops? Yes. Mm, Nonsense. Yeah. I thought that was about the brontosaurus. That too. Well, supposedly the, I, I looked it up really fast. Supposedly researchers from Montana State University have determined that the beloved three-horned dinosaur wasn't really a distinct genus, but the juvenile version of the Taurosaurus. Which is similar to the stuff that went around with Apatosaurus and Brachiosaurus and Brontosaurus. Mm-hmm. And if I had to pick a second one, well, no, I should let everyone else you, go first. You don't have to pick a second one. You can like Triceratops. I'm with Bo. I'm, I'm with Bo with Triceratops. Yeah. Well, I'll go next. Brachiosaurus. There you go. They're like the, as, and you're saying, especially when you say channel your 10-year-old kid, because number one, we had, we had like all the models, and that was like one that I, I don't know if, I, I'm sure I had a name for it. I don't remember it, but, and we knew the history. We'd look up all the Plant eating dinosaur that wasn't gonna scare. It wasn't scary. He was like the good one. Mm-hmm. Like big necks. He was the yeah. kind dinosaur. <laughs> the T Rex like was super cool, and we all yeah. loved the T Rex, obviously. Yeah. But you didn't want it. You didn't want to run into a T Rex. Brachiosaurus. Yeah. I felt like it would have as a pet. Mm-hmm. Back then, I wanted a pet Brachiosaurus. That's a big old book, pet. Isn't there a book to a children's book that's got a Brachiosaurus in it? I want to say there is. Yeah, it's funny. I think you're right. I don't remember what it's called, but I can picture I'm it. That one up. There's a dinosaur kid where a kid even maybe has a pet brachiosaurus. I'm gonna, I'll find this out. All right, Pat, what's yours? I think I would. I think I misunderstood the question. I was going to say Grimlock, but I don't think that's <laughs> the spirit. I I'm sorry, guys. Yes. I think I got this question wrong. You know what? It's funny because I think you're, I think you guys are getting all like the favorites, like the Triceratops. I know what you're saying about, right? Like the, and they even kind of do that in the movie in this one, right? Like the meat eating ones are kind of like the bad guys. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You, you know, love the T-Rex. I thought the Raptors were cool. You know what I'm saying? And especially. Well, they're badass for sure. Well, yeah. Pat, Pat, seeing as how the humans are made of meat. Yes. The meat eaters are going to be the bad guys. Dennis, right. check the so, chat. 
I just sent you a link. Okay. Okay. And what I was picturing, well done. I, I tell you, I always like, I always like yeah. the, uh, what am I saying? Pteranodons or the, uh, mm. the. Oh, like a pterodactyl? Yeah. Or like the pterodactyl, just the yeah. ones that could fly. I always thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. So. Pterodactyls um, are, are cool, but again, that like those are scary too. Right. Like they're going to sweep by and pick up your dog. So yeah, <laughs> those aren't going to bother with your dog. They're coming after you, son. <laughs> One of the things that I really liked about the book and the movie was it introduced me to dinosaurs that I'd never heard of before, like the Dilophosaur mm-hmm. and the, and the Raptor. Mm-hmm. And man, what terrifying villains those kind of dinosaurs became. Mm-hmm. Which they came out when they came out and the Raptors aren't really what they, portray in the movie isn't that what they found they are actually more bird-like and smaller and all that kind of stuff Uh, there's no evidence that they hunted in packs and stuff like that i feel like they had feathers and fur and they were like the size of chickens i want to say they're like the size of the of the uh, compies that you see in jurassic park three yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah Mine was, I think, my favorite one just because visually it was so different from all the other ones was Stegosaurus. Mm, it was like he had, had all the plates on his back and he had the spike tail. And I mean, I, I would not take that one as a pet, but I just thought it would always look cool. Did you know that the plates on the back would glow red when Stegosaurus became agitated and approached really? Tokyo? <laughs> they it was part of their I get I believe part of their defense mechanism that there were blood vessels all up in the plate. Are you for real? And, and, yeah. Oh. And as they would as they would fight or grow agitated and the blood would flow faster, it would cause this glowing thing to happen. Huh. I oh. learned that when I went to go see a show called Walking with Dinosaurs. Huh. It was like a, a stadium show of Walking, which I think now yeah. is like a, a Jurassic World show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the one that went through like Rosemont Horizon or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was like, it was awesome. I think my, it was my so sister, cool. I think my sister took my son to that. Yeah. It was like, I, it was, um, I was amazed with how realistic the dinosaurs in that show looked. But, but yeah, that was, I was surprised to, to learn that about the Stegosaurus. Well, I like him even more now because that mixes my love of Stegosaurus with my love of Gojira. Blood? <laughs> well, and that too. And 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 when the Stegosaurus stomps on the ground, it makes a big hole that the Decepticons fall into. Yes. Pat, I was going to point out, I felt like there was more than meets the eye to your response earlier, but... Yeah, there it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dinos in disguise. All right, question number two, if you could bring back, so here's here's the question that may take us another three hours. If you could bring back extinct animals through cloning, would you do it? It depends. Okay, on? Things. On whether humans were the cause of the extinction? Well, yeah, I mean, I think if, if, for me it would depend on why and how these animals went extinct. Mm-hmm. And if it was a human cause, then I feel like then maybe humans should try to fix that and maybe see what they can do. If the, if the technology was actually truly there, mm-hmm. I think that would be the right thing to do. But 
again, was pointed out in the movie, if it's a species of animal that had its chance on earth and was separated by millions of years from mankind, leave it alone. Mm-hmm. What if, and, and I don't necessarily subscribe to this, if you were to consider man as just another animal, does that do anything to change the thought that, well, if it was a man-made cause for extinction, what if we're just another animal that wiped out another group of animals? Yeah. You know, like if, 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 in other words, you're still affecting nature, right? If If we are, if we are just another part of nature, then does that, is there any special consideration that has to be given when we say, well, I'd bring something like condors. He gives the example of condors and he's like, well, no, if, if men, if they were wiped out because of mankind, that's different Then yes, we could talk about bringing them back. But if you look at mankind as just another part of nature, does that change the answer at all? Mankind knows what they're doing. Yeah. For what purpose does mankind feel the need to wipe out a species of animal? Yeah. I don't know. I'm not saying I necessarily agree with that, but. That's John. I think think play the Agent Smith monologue to Morpheus from the Matrix. All creatures achieve some sort of equilibrium with the surrounding area. Oh, see, I thought you were going to go with, it's the smell, if there is such a thing. Yeah, <laughs> <sighs> yeah I don't know. I think, I think, I mean, if we're trying to repopulate a species, then I guess I would be open to that. I mean, if it's like, wow, the last of the great white horned rhino it goes extinct, or like there's two great white sharks left, or George and Gracie are the last two humpback whales swimming around in the ocean and we can do something to, to, you know, repopulate the species, then yeah, I guess I would be open to that idea. But then what are we doing that for? I mean, are we just going to like make a bunch of elephants so we can harvest their tusks so you can have ivory, whatever, you know what I'm saying? Like I I don't, I wouldn't want to just breed animals just to slaughter them for, whatever you, you know what i'm saying right yeah. so i mean if you're trying to bring back balance and you know there are legit preserves and nature preserves and we can kind of let nature be nature and all that kind of thing then yes but i mean if we're just populating animals that then we're going to go in and slash and burn to make another whatever or but like then it's just like why do that that's kind right? of my that's kind of my answer my answer is if it's just for the benefit of mankind, then no. Like in this movie, it seems like, hey, m- kids love dinosaurs. I loved dinosaurs when I was a kid. Let me clone dinosaurs and bring them back so we can see them for real. If it's something like that, no. But if it's something like when I was asking these questions of, of the family earlier tonight, my example I gave was if it's something like bees, you know, I'm not a huge fan of bees. I don't like get, getting stung by bees. But everything I ever hear is that when bee populations go down, that's bad for the entire earth. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that's not that's not for the benefit solely of mankind. That's, oops, we did something through pollution, through whatever, that caused bee populations to drop drastically. If the bees get wiped out from the earth, then we're, we're done for. 
So if it's something like that, then yes. And, and part of me also thinks if something's not completely gone yet, then yes, your example of are there only two humpback whales left? Are there only two, or are there only 300 of this particular species left? Then can we help repopulate that? Yes. I, then I would say, sure, go ahead. But like Nora's example tonight, when I asked this question, she's like, bring back Megalodon. I don't think that's a good idea. I'm like, yeah, no, probably not a good idea. Saber-toothed tiger, woolly yeah. mammoth. Yeah, weren't they weren't they trying to bring back woolly mammoths a while ago? Didn't they find yeah, some so. woolly mammoth DNA and they were going to try to Jurassic Park that? I think the, I guess the philosoph. I don't know. From my question, my standpoint is like to bring them back. I feel like you're kind of messing with nature. And yes, we're part of nature, and that's yeah, that's the difficult question. But I think if we can, our best job is to try to prevent their extinction if we can in the first place. Right. But once they're gone, where do you draw the line? Which creatures get to come back? And like you said, why? Is it just because that one's cute and that one's ugly? Does the dodo not get a, a, a trip back, but the woolly mammoth looks cooler, so we bring him back? But the dodo doesn't really serve much purpose for us. You know, what? Then I feel like we start playing God. You should know by now. It's all a popularity contest. Yeah. All right, question number three. If you were in this movie, which scene would be the most terrifying for you to be in? The one where... The lawyer gets bitten in half. <laughs> yes. I mean, I'm sure we've all spent some bad times in the bathroom before, but I think that one kind of tops it. Yeah. That kitchen scene Dennis mentioned earlier. That's, yeah. Whew. Muldoon getting his face chewed off. Uh-huh. So I guess you guys are going by... What scene would you not want to be in, but you're including ones where you die? Or I guess I'm thinking I live, so that's well, why I get to But look at, the, look at the question. Which scene would be the most traumatic? If, if you were one of the characters in this yeah. movie, which scene would be the most traumatic for you? Clearly, well, I'm the assuming one traumatic the... means I've survived. Does so it? I have, a recollection of, I have a recollection of trauma. I mean, you can recollect the trauma. For die. The next... I mean, well, heck, any scene where you die is going to be its pretty much not traumatic. It's absolute like you're gone. Well, Dennis, even if you're getting eaten by the velociraptors, you are alive when they start to eat you. So you do have some time to re recollect the trauma. Relatively short, traumatic. Short-lived short trauma. Right. I, I'm not saying it's long-term trauma. Hmm. I, gotta, I think I got to go with the kitchen scene because I... As much as the whole scene with the T-Rex terrifies me, I feel like I could just sit still and not scream. And then I probably would be okay. I mean, granted, if that thing's right in my face and, and blowing hot air out of its nostrils right in my face, I might panic a little bit. But the the whole Velociraptor thing, knowing oh, yeah. that the T-Rex has that weakness as if you can just sit still, it can't see you. Like that at least gives you an out, but the Velociraptor seems like they seem so sinister and so smart and intelligent and evil. It's it's like the horror movie where the villain doesn't really have a weakness. Yeah, they have every they have speed. Yeah. They have like they they figure things out where the yeah like the the, the T Rex is like big a, and lumbering. Big, I feel like you know dope you could fool. Hey, he no. got yeah. in, but he got into the visitor center somehow without anybody even seeing. 
I bet your raptor opened the door. That's because he's big and just knocked out a piece of glass. <laughs> I still want to see the deleted scene where he uses those tiny arms to climb up that hundred foot drop that's right outside his pen. <laughs> like how uh, we don't we don't we don't talk about that. No, okay. I just I just want. Did to you guys ever? He stepped over. Guys, it. Oh. it was a moat. Okay. Did you guys ever see the Simpsons where it was like Jurassic Park or a Jurassic Park two or whatever? And the Velociraptors had gotten even smarter and like to open the doors, they, the humans locked the doors. So the Velociraptors like chew bubble gum and shoved it under the door on a piece of paper and then hit the wall and the key fell on the bubble. Gum. It was, it was in the Simpsons. I'm almost sure it was positive. It was the Simpsons. And it was just like a play on how smart the Velociraptors were. And by the end they were like, if I remember right, it was almost like the talking gremlin in Gremlins too. It was like it's just so ridiculously over the top. It was it was pretty funny. I probably my real answer is probably the visitor center at the end when they're cornered by the raptors. Yeah. Cause then there's like nowhere else to go. Yeah. Like they they've they've got you backed against the wall, like That's it. Yeah. Outside, outside, this went in with like awesome scenes and scary scenes when they're climbing up into the roof panels and the girl is like falling yeah. and she's just holding on and the raptor's like stunned below and it's like getting up and you don't process how close and they pull her up right as the velociraptor jumps and bites and that scene just looks so real and it's just scary as all get out because it's like she's almost there and, and my gosh that thing almost took her legs off mm-hmm. i thought that 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 scene and just again it was like oh man it's like 10 feet below the ceiling and then it just up oh, it jumps and it's like it's right there yeah that was pretty cool have you heard the story of that scene i, I think i'm about to when they filmed it so that was the stunt stunt double that went through the ceiling right when they filmed it yeah but when she did, at one point, the stunt double looked up at the camera. So they had to use their new CGI technology to get a computer rendering of Lex's face and okay. place it onto the stunt double so that when the stunt double looked up, you see Lex's, you see Ariana Richards' face and not the face of the stunt double. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So next time you watch that scene, when you see when you see Lex look up real quick, that was an accident that wasn't supposed to happen. Okay, is that interesting? Do you think is that the first time they did something like that where you replaced you digitally replaced? A, I don't know. I'm be, not sure. I'd be curious I mean, to find out if that's they were using because they were using computers for a little bit. Yeah, before Jurassic Park, kind of fiddling around with CGI stuff, but I don't know if they've ever done on humans using it as to, to replicate a human in any way. Yeah. Well, and now 30 years later, we're de-aging Harrison Ford. All right. I think, did everybody answer? Did you give your answer for whether it's long or short-term trauma? Which scene? Yeah, I, for me, it's definitely the raptors in the kitchen because yeah. I think of the kitchen as, as being a happy place, and yet that's terrifying to me that they could ruin it in that way. <laughs> I don't go into a kitchen expecting to be the one that gets prepared. So Maybe is, you should. Uh, no. 
I honestly, I wouldn't go to Jurassic Park in the first place. I think I'd be too terrified to go there. That should have been a question. Would you even go to Jurassic Park in the first place? Hmm. I think I would, but I wouldn't be, I wouldn't go the first year. Let alone iron out the kinks, you know. Yeah, it's like it's like you know iOS sixteen. You just wait till sixteen point one comes out. Well, my, my it's my general rule with restaurants. You never go yeah. the first two weeks of a brand new restaurant. No, it's just yeah. let them iron out the problems. But you know what? One of the other rules about going to a restaurant is it's probably never going to be healthier than like a couple weeks after they got some kind of health violation. So after all this happens, that might be the best time to go to Jurassic Park. Pose that is true. The safety inspectors are keenly aware of the the, issues. Might be the safest place in the world. All right. Still dinosaurs that can kill you. I'm not sure if that's ever safe. Well, that's that's true. That is true. I'm still, my mind is still boggled that dinosaurs close in the dark. I'm going to have to go find that somewhere. It just made him cooler. That's all. I know. It didn't serve a purpose, right? It's just more like a mood ring. I don't care. That's fine. Right? Well, but if, you, but if you're talking about, like, I wonder if it did serve a purpose evolution, evolutionarily. Purpose of it would be. Well, I just wonder if, depending on how other dinosaurs saw, like, if any of them did have, like, sight that leaned infrared, there might be something to that. Yeah. Yeah, As served, a defensive it, tool. It served a purpose. It was back off. Right. I mean, that that's enough of a purpose. Ankylosaur. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, everybody, this has been our first episode, episode 450. First episode of 1993, Jurassic Park. So glad we got to talk about this one. And so glad we had the whole gang together for this one too so thank you everybody for being here with us tonight thank you jeff thank you dennis thank you Bo. thank you pat thank Thank you you, john John. getting us together so we've got some good good stuff coming up here really soon here in the month of january we have got our patreon episodes are the outsiders from 1983 mr mom from 83 and then a favorite movies from the year 2022 we've also got regular episodes are this one matinee is coming out next week free willy Dragon the Bruce Lee story finishes off in January. February, Patreon is favorite love songs from the 80s and 90s. And then a couple of Patreon shorts. Not quite sure what they're going to be yet, but we'll get them in there. And then our regular episodes for the month of February are Dave, Searching for Bobby Fisher, Benny and June, and Carlito's Way. So we've got some good I stuff coming. I love Dave. That, I have not seen that in a long, long time. So I'm looking forward to that one. I guess. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, I remember really liking it. I and, I remember, and I remember seeing it several times, so. You can't kill him. He's the president. He's not the president. He's an ordinary man. I can kill an ordinary man. I can kill a hundred ordinary men. So good. That's usually what I tell myself in the mirror when I wake up in the morning. (laughs) Whatever your mantra is. Yes. Good enough. I'm smart enough and I can kill a hundred ordinary men. Yep. It's I say that right as I'm drinking my cherry juice in the morning. No. All right, everybody be excellent to each other. Go watch some good movies. We'll see you back here next time. Bye. <laughs>